Welcome to the Annie Gamers Podcast. This is episode number 145. I'm your host, Evan Minto. And today, my guest is uh, is from across the ocean, Matt Schley. He is a writer for Otaku USA, my sometime editor on there, uh, and also for the Japan Times, a Japanese to English translator. And he wanted me to say that he's a lover of yakitori, to which I can personally attest. <laughs> it's true. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've had you once before on like a very impromptu Anime Next convention episode, but now you, you're on a, a proper AGP. Yeah, I mean, that was fun because we were in person stumbling around a hotel room on a, uh, a hotel on a Saturday morning looking for a place to record that wasn't too loud. Right, right, right. And we were like, are we going to get in trouble with the convention <laughs> staff for hijacking this room? Those were the days, man. Yeah, being in rooms with people. Yep. yep we'll we'll yep. talk about that. At, actually, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about COVID nineteen today. Uh, so, the the main reason that uh, ha- I'm having Matt on, other than just he's a cool guy to talk to, is uh, we kind of wanted to f- sort of follow up on what we talked about in that Patreon episode last year uh, and talk about uh, in more detail about uh, the working conditions of animators and and animation staff in Japan. And about COVID and how like the uh, pandemic has has affected the industry and production in general. So kind of uh, not reviewing any particular thing today, but kind of talking about all that. Reviewing life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so before we get into that, we're I'm uh, going to do the Q segment here. Uh, so I'm going to talk about some stuff that we've been up to. I'll start this time with uh with an update that is uh is exciting but also sad because uh because my regular co-host david can't be with us to to berate me for taking this long to do it i finally played metal gear solid 5 ground zeros which is like the prequel mini game thing before you play the phantom pain which is the true metal gear solid 5 i'm not really sure why there were two versions of it (laughs) it's like uh evangelion death and rebirth yeah, I guess it kind of is. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> it is like a, it's a direct prequel, I guess. So it's the I, I haven't played uh, Phantom Pain yet, but I guess Phantom Pain probably takes place in a different location and possibly time period. Uh, and so it's kind of like bridging the gap between Peace Walker and Phantom Pain, uh, which I played Peace Walker maybe a year or two back. It is pretty cool so far. It's only maybe like an hour or two or even less if you're like good at the game, which I'm not Uh, because I was kind of getting used to it. It's I'll probably have, you know, I may review it with David when I finally finish uh, Phantom Pain, but it was a little jarring, like the the mechanics kind of shift a little bit between the older Metal Gear games and Ground Zeroes. I'm kind of used to Metal Gear games being a little more, like like they kind of have some more discrete um, stealth mechanics, uh, kind of a holdover from like the original 2D games where you you have sort of you have concrete ways of seeing when you are or are not going to be spotted right so like in in the original games and in like metal gear like the original metal gear games and in metal gear solid and stuff you you know you have like the the field of view for all of the the guards and then even in the later games that have the the camo stuff you get like a camo percentage so that you can like you kind of have a number you can look at to be like all right I'm at like 90% camo so I'm I'm pretty safe right now and 5 is it feels more realistic the way that the the like 
uh, guards seeing you works. And so I, it was taking some getting used to to be like, what what can I and can't I do that's going to get me caught? Did you play four? Yeah, so I played all of the Kojima Metal Gear games except for Phantom Pain. Okay. Uh, I, I haven't played... There's some ones that are like, I guess they're technically canon, but but a lot of fans don't totally acknowledge them because Kojima didn't directly write them. Um, so Portable Ops I didn't play. I think that's one of those. Like Acid, Metal Gear Acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, well, I don't know which ones you've played. Are you a big Metal Gear guy? Well, I, I was up to, I played three, um, and then uh, I briefly had a PS3 on which I I like bought four and I was playing through it a bit, but I kind of felt, I guess, about four, how you, the thing you're describing about five, where I felt it was like a little bit too open world or whatever for, for these creaky old man, old man video game bones, I guess. It was just like, I, I want the little heads up display and I want to see the, where the dumb guards, they can only see in, in 90, 90 degrees of view, you know? Um, so I, yeah, I got a little bit frustrated with that um so i imagine five is even more in that direction yeah i think i I think i remember that with four also but four had the kind of cool like active camo mechanic which was like an evolution of the one from three where you could stand next to something and your camo would automatically adjust to it so that was kind of cool but yeah i remember it being a little more open and that sometimes made it a little confusing five i think is really open like i believe i i I mean, I never really read that much about it. I was kind of like avoiding spoiling myself too much, but I believe the game is basically open world or something close to it, like the the full Phantom Pain experience. But even even Ground Zeroes, which is basically a single level, is surprisingly open. Like there's just a lot of different ways to go through. It's not this kind of on rails thing where it's like, okay, get through this room. And like each room is a stealth puzzle. Right, right. I mean, I kind of, that's kind of what I liked about Metal Gear Solid. So yeah, four kind of put me off. So Five, do you feel like it's closer to like a previous Metal Gear? Or do you you played um Death Stranding, right? Oh, well, I'm curious to see because I think Ground Zeroes is probably not representative. I'm curious to see what Phantom Pain is like. Phantom Pain is I imagine it's it's got some similarities to Death Stranding just in terms of the sort of Kojima trajectory, right? But Ground Zeroes cuz it's in like a single level and it's basically a it's all just stealth stuff the whole way through. Um it it actually feels like in some ways very similar to the older games, right? It's it's like, all right, Snake, you're on a sneaking mission. Time to sneak into this compound and save the hostages, right? Right. So I, I do like that. I don't I don't know what Phantom Pain is going to be like, really. I mean, I, I my only thing I generally understand about it is like it is has an open world, I guess, probably with some kinds of like enemy compounds that you that you come across in the world. And I guess it has a lot of using the Fulton uh what is it the fulton system fultoning the guys that's the thing from um from peace walker where you can attach the guys to the balloons and then they, they like fly up what yeah <laughs> it, i i my understanding from like the memes i saw is that it gets like even more use in phantom pain than it did in uh in peace walker and becomes even goofier which is cool i'm good i always want more goofy stuff in metal gear games <laughs> sign me up for that i guess so with the ps5 coming out i'm always like one generation behind um so i guess now i can get a ps4 and play all yeah, these finally. games that i've been hearing about for the last <laughs> i can't believe that thing is what like seven years old or something i guess it is yeah yeah i keep thinking of it as the newfangled playstation but it's actually came out like yeah years and years ago so 
yeah, we're coming up on the new generation end of this year. Indeed. So I, I guess I'll grab one of those. And when I do, I guess Metal Gear Solid will be one of my one of my games to try. Yeah, my dad called me and was like, what's the deal with the PlayStation 5? What can it do that the old console can't do? And I was like, well, uh, Take I mean, up more space. the stuff looks a little better. Yeah, it takes up more of your money that <laughs> you, you had sitting in your pocket, not doing anything with it. <laughs> All right, so Matt, you're up next, uh, and you, you most of the time my guests tell me and put it on the on the notes what they're going to talk about, but I don't know what Matt is going to talk about here. Yeah, this is thr- thrill. I thought, see, I thought that was the thing, because then it would be all spontaneous and whatever. But anyway, no, no, nothing spontaneous on this podcast. Everything is pre-planned. Every word that we say. <laughs> um, so I went and this last week I went and saw the new Violet Evergarden film that came just came out in Japan on on September 18th um and movie theaters in Japan are pretty much open for business um every wow. every other seat is unavailable but otherwise um you can go see stuff you have to wear a mask and they check your temperature at the door but otherwise um you know things are going i think tenet just came out here Oh, wow. Yeah, you guys are living in the amazing future in which you can watch Tenet. Well, yeah, this is retribution for all of the other films that come out, usually come out. No, that, that's really funny. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, the irony that Japan now gets, uh, gets Tenet before the U.S. Ha, uh, suckers. I, I remember multiple times uh, taking some of the guys from Trigger to watch Marvel movies before they came out in Japan when they were here for Genericon. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it's even worse if you're into like indie film like I am. So some stuff just doesn't come out. So whenever I come back to the States, people think I'm crazy, but I spend like half the time in in movie theaters. Mm. Um, Anyway, Violet Evergarden is quite a film. I mean, aside from content aside, the fact that it exists is just a kind of a minor miracle. As people, I'm sure, recall this about about a year ago, 15 months ago, um, KyoAni was was uh, hit by an arsonist and w- who killed 36 people, injured more, destroyed the entire Studio One, um, and they they fought on and they released this film. And not only that, but they were planning to release it in January. Um, the arson made it delayed until April, and then they're about to release their big comeback film, and then COVID happens. So it got pushed again to last weekend. So, um, you know, I walked into the theater. People are crying from, like, minute one, understandably. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, Violet Evergarden is is almost the perfect kind of thematic uh, rap tie-in to to I think what happened to Kyoani, it's a, about a woman who survived war and is kind of healing and, and all that stuff. So whether the film is any good or or not aside, I mean, I think it was pretty good, but just the fact that it came out in this exact time and it is, it's about what it's about, I just, it felt like just the perfect thing for this time. And, and you know, in the intervening years since the Kyoani attack, we've all faced our own kind of weird traumas due to COVID. And so it's a film, nothing explodes, there's no action. It's a very kind of quiet film. And I just felt like it was, it's perfect for this moment. So it was, it was good to see. 
Cool. I never I never watched that much of Violet Evergarden. Not one of the KyoAni things that really like personally hooked me, but I'm very, very happy that they are back. Yeah. And I, I that makes a lot of sense that like thematically it really fits. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the the script was probably finished by that point, but I it just whether it's a, a uh, coincidence or or whatever, it just felt like it's the perfect film for this moment. All right, that is the cue, and uh, we're going to get into our main discussion here. So there's a lot. We have a lot of stuff to cover. We, we t- took a lot of notes here, try to organize <laughs> our thoughts on this. Uh, but the, the general idea is we kind of wanted to dig into some some news stories that I think we might have covered on the show a little bit. You know, occasionally we'll, we'll bring up some news about, um, about working conditions in the animation industry in Japan. But, you know, we haven't really, like, gone, gone all the way in and really talked through, like, what is the state of things? Uh, what are the possible solutions or, or even just the causes for the, the current state of things? Um, but I mean, maybe we should just start with kind of, like, where things are at right now uh, and, and kind of recapping some of the basics the basics are uh, it's not great to work in the anime industry uh it uh, doesn't pay very well at most in most positions right so not just animators but also uh, production assistants who people talk a lot about like animators specifically right but there's there's lots of other people who make the make the animation happen who actually like run the frames around and things yeah uh, it's it's um like a lot of industries around the world that people want to do, um, there's a expectation that, well, because you want to do it, then you're going to be willing to get paid less to do it. And, you know, it's kind of like being an intern. And I, 10 years ago, I was an intern in Hollywood and I did it for free. I mean, I did it for college credit, but it was this kind of like, if you don't want to do it, buddy, there's 10 people waiting behind you to do the same thing for no money. So... It's like the game industry. Yep. Same kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. And on top of that, you've got a lot of historical precedent um, that has kind of made animation a low-paying industry for the last, well, since it's existed in Japan, basically, at least in its current form. So what you're referring to there is the common thing. I've probably mentioned this on the show. I've definitely mentioned this in my panels about how Astro Boy kind of started the, the modern TV animation industry in Japan, but uh, also kind of, I mean, well, this is the story. We can talk about whether or not this is true, but the, uh, the story goes that it, it um, also started the low valuation of anime episodes and like uh, of their production. Uh, so, so as the story goes, basically Osamu Tezuka was trying to sort of outcompete other potential shows that were you know, there were there were some. Uh, I guess there were some other shows that, or that were like theoretically c- could be made. Other other manga that people were thinking of turning into TV anime, and he was like, "All right, I want to outcompete them and bid. You know, bid low enough." Uh, and he was very desperate to get onto TV and and become you know become an animation producer. And so he you know he's like, "Well, I know it'll take a lot more money, but I can afford to take the hit on this and and just you know." offer it to them for a low cost and the result is that you know uh tv stations got used to that as like oh that's what it costs to produce in a tv animation episode right right and so for years and years and years people have kind of blamed tezuka for the low wages in the industry it turns out it may be a little bit more nuanced than that um there's kind of new reporting 
or at least kind of re-reporting that um, Physica was maybe a little bit uh, more kind of uh, had some business savvy and that sure he, he kind of gave them a low number, but then later negotiated a higher number. And even the fact that he was maybe not getting paid that much per episode, he made money on the other end of things. So he kept the rights the merchandising rights, kind of like George Lucas for Star Wars, right? He made sure that he had the rights for the, the character licensing, so he could license out Astro Boy, Tetsuan Atom to, uh, you know, to every anybody he wanted, and he got all the profit for that. And then there were, there were other shows that came on that same year, maybe a season or two afterward, like um, Tetsujin 28 or Wolf Boy Ken, who were not made by um, Mushi Pro, which is Tezuka's was Tezuka Studio. And the guys that set up those shows were a little less savvy about that stuff, and they ended up giving the um, television networks the rights to the the characters and things like that. And maybe it was the precedent that they that those guys set that actually made things um, artificially low. Yeah, and we we will, uh, I think, touch on that that particular point later in terms of the modern industry, the like lack of rights that production studios have. I mean, I, I think it's probably a, a bit of both. It, it's worth mentioning that in like, when you, when you talk about Tezuka and like, you know, did Tezuka invent anime or did Tezuka ruin anime? Um, there is like a, as I understand, it, I mean, you, you live in Japan and kind of are a little more connected with this stuff, but uh, there is a kind of like just it comes in waves of like Tezuka is a god, Tezuka is a fraud, right? Yeah. Like in the same way as something like the Beatles, right? Somebody who's like revered and it's like, you know, all right, this year, uh, you know, there's a lot of articles about how this thing sucks. And then the next year, a lot of articles about how it's great. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and ultimately things are nuanced and gray and subtle and you you really have to dig into the history to, to see that. But it's... You know, you get more blog hits if you if you say it's it's black or white. You know, right, 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 exactly. Yeah. So the the result of of this stuff and and a lot of subsequent developments is yeah uh, the the animators don't get paid, don't get paid a lot. The actual people on the ground don't get paid a lot. Uh, but there is a there's a big layer that will will this will come up repeatedly in here uh, that sits in between like you the customer and the uh, the animators. Uh, and even even between you and the studios, which is the production committees, who are sort of, I think, frequently come up as the kind of villains of the story here in anything that you, uh, any reporting on this. Uh, and they are basically a, they're these like sort of ad hoc, like groups of companies that come together to produce uh, an anime. So it w- it, they're often from like different industries that have a, they have differing like interests in the production. So it might include a TV network, a uh, a uh, like merchandise company, a like a, like a toy company, or and uh, like a home video distributor, right? So so for example, like Aniplex would be the one that is like the home video one, and then Bandai might be the the toy distributor, and like NTV or something might be the TV station. And then there's also sometimes companies that are like like advertising agencies and things, or even just like just like banks. I think sometimes, right? There's just various like financial interests, like like people who don't even want a piece of. They're not putting their money in in order to get like the toy rights. They're just doing it for like a return on their investment. Right. Yeah. So when you watch an anime and it says, you know, if you're watching, uh, going back to Violet Evergarden, you'll see at the very end of the credits the Violet Evergarden Production Committee and. 
you'll think, why was an entire company put together just to make this anime? But yeah, that's the it's like a, forming an LLC. It's something you can put together and then take apart as soon as it's finished. Though I, I from from what I understand, the they're somewhat resilient. Like they're it's not the same production committee for different shows necessarily, but it's often a lot of the same companies will like stick together and make the next show together. Yeah, totally. Totally. They're in control of the show and they're usually uh, like they those companies keep the money from the show. Right. And they will they'll pay a fee to the studio like as a kind of work for hire to produce it. But uh, unless the studio is on the production committee and is able to negotiate for like you were saying, like merchandise rights or things like that, the they don't kind of like they don't benefit from the show being successful. That's right. That's right. So if you think about it in terms of gambling, um, it's putting chips on a lot of, oh God, I don't know. I don't gamble. So what am I saying? Um, <laughs> it's putting chips on the stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's betting. It's betting on the show. And it's it reduces their risk by pooling their chips together because nobody has to put as much money on it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So in a way, it protects studios because if studios went down on a limb and made um, one show and funded it themselves and it was a failure, then that would be it for the studio. On the other hand, if it's a big hit, as you're saying, they don't reap as much profit as they would if it was their product. So basically the the studios are not getting that much money in in the first place, right, from the production committees because they're kind of pocketing it for their own, uh, you know, just whatever, like just to recoup their investment, et cetera. And then on top of that, uh, and I think, Matt, you're maybe a little more familiar with this landscape than I am, but there are... Not that many unions, there's very, very few actual like unions or any kind of like worker protection in the anime industry. Uh, so when there's there's not much money coming into the studios and then there's like not a lot of kind of defense against uh, the animators being given even a smaller slice of that little bit of money that the studios get. And that that's the broad strokes of it. And we'll kind of get into some recent news stories that, that go into more detail about that. Right, right. So the, the whole way the, stu- the industry is set up is that aside from places like Toei, um, studios themselves are pretty small operations and they don't really have a ton of employees. The way that most animators are used and abused is on a kind of um, freelance basis or self-employed basis um, where they kind of drift from studio to studio or even if they've been at a studio for decades and decades they are technically freelance uh, workers. And so they are not afforded a lot of the protections that um, you would get under Japanese law as a salaried employee. And as is true uh, over here as well, and just like in general, under capitalism, um, a freelancer can be very successful if they are kind of personally, you know, their brand is really strong and they're very sought out, right? And then they can, they have a lot of like negotiating power. Uh, But when, when it's like a large group of, uh, you know, I mean, no offense to these artists, right? But in some cases kind of, kind of interchangeable, right? Like from the perspective of the company, there's these like fungible assets. Uh, Then being a freelancer is not necessarily great, (laughs) right? Because they're not able to command this like high cost for their services they just are somebody who the company doesn't have to like provide the same benefits to that they would an employee. That's right. That's right. And that that process of becoming a valuable animator that people seek out takes time, obviously. And you generally enter the industry 
out of you might go to a specialty school to learn animation or you might go to to a regular university so you enter the industry as a 20 21 year old without a lot of um, spare income without any income um, the income you're making as a in-between animator uh, is not going to pay the bills so a lot of animators basically if they're lucky they can work they can live at home while they while they polish their craft for the first few years which is fine if your parents are willing to uh, support you with that, and if they live anywhere close to an anime studio, most of 99% of which are, are located in Tokyo. So you get um, young people from around the country who want to be animators, who move to Tokyo, um, have to find, you know, the cheapest apartment they can. Um, often they'll have to take side jobs um, to pay, to get at least a minimum wage, which is more than they make making anime, which is insane. And a lot get get burnt out and i think the figure is something like 60 percent of it could be higher of uh, newbie animators leave the industry within two or three years um, because they just can't keep up with it and um, obviously if that continues they can't be go from being in-betweeners to becoming um, keyframe artists and the next generation of of anime creators isn't going to exist to say nothing of the, just the uh, inhumane aspect of of the them being you know so overworked and underpaid. Absolutely. Uh, so there were two kind of recent news stories that I think are are really relevant here and and worth talking about, and they're like super super related to each other. Uh, so they're both these lawsuits against anime studios uh, centering around the idea of uh, workers who have like flexible work hours. And this is something I might, I might need a little clarification on because some of the ANN reporting, I think doesn't like go into a ton of detail about it. Uh, my understanding is this is basically like similar to an overtime exempt worker in the U S is that accurate? That sounds about right. Um, as I understand it, these guys were not animators, right? They're production assistants, which means unlike animators who get paid by the frame or by the, the shot or whatever, um, these guys are salaried employees, ostensibly. But yes, with a, a kind of strange working arrangement called the, yeah, the flexible hours thing, um, which I, th you know, if you read between the lines, uh, like you say, that basically means they don't get paid overtime. Well, it's funny you said it's strange because it's very common in the U.S. for like, uh, for kind of like white collar jobs in a lot of cases I, I guess it for certain things like i mean i'm a i'm a programmer right i mean i work freelance now but when i was uh um when i was in, like an employee at places like it's just you never get paid overtime as a programmer uh granted like you know it just depends on the company whether they're gonna <laughs> work you some insane number of hours every week but uh it sounds like it's basically like that i don't know if that's common in japan or not like just for a sort of salary man or Something like that. I think it's probably more common in these kind of um, uh, creative industries, I would imagine. Or maybe programming might also be similar. I mean, the, the salary men that I know um, get paid over time. So, but that's in more kind of traditional industries. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And to be clear, I'm not saying just because I'm like, well, it's very common in the U.S. That doesn't mean that it's good. In fact, something being common in the U.S. often means it's bad. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So uh, there's two studios in question here. One is Studio 4C, uh, and the other is, uh, uh, yes, in fact, 
despite my uh, despite me always speaking glowingly about their shows, Studio Trigger, uh, nobody is innocent here. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah, I, I like these are two of my favorite studios too. So this was kind of a, a bummer to read about. Uh, but I mean, the thing is, these stories come out all the time about, frankly, like most studios, right? Like I, I could probably count on like one hand the number of major studios for which I have not heard some kind of complaint about the working conditions or something. Yep. Like KyoAni is one of the few. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so basically, yeah, the idea is these this employee at Four C was being. It's very weird. It was like he wasn't told. Uh, he wasn't told his like the the wage he was supposed to get paid or the the hours he was expected to work. Uh, so he wasn't. He couldn't know like what was. I think this is this is my understanding. Like he couldn't really know what was overtime and what wasn't right, and what his overtime rate was supposed to be. Uh, and then when he submitted an invoice for it and, and was requesting his unpaid overtime, they came back and they they were like, it sounded like they had, you know, classic, like, multiple responses to it, where they're like, well, uh, you weren't working all that time, and they, like, asked more, and they're like, oh, also, you were, you d- don't get overtime at all, actually. We just checked the paperwork that we may or may not have just made <laughs> right now. I think this comes down to that thing where, again, where these studios are small and a lot of them work on these kind of handshake agreements and nobody really bothers to check the fine print if the fine print exists at all. Yeah, it, it kind of sounded like that from the way that like, you know, he's describing that he didn't know his wage going in, which seems strange to me. But it, yeah, like you said, like kind of handshake agreements, like sort of good faith assumptions. So one of the interesting things for me about this story, which is uh, the, the trigger one's very similar. It's someone who is also like it's unpaid overtime, long and flexible work hours. Uh, that one reached like an amicable settlement, according to trigger and the employee. Uh, both of these, the these were like brought to the forefront because there is this group. Uh, it's a I mean, I'm not sure exactly like how they operate they, they are called a union but i don't know like sometimes things in the anime industry get called unions that aren't unions like the japanese animation <laughs> creators association uh so it's called the black kingyo or kigyo union which is a uh like black company right mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. like a uh japanese term for a company with like really bad workplace practices and things right Mm -hmm. uh and so they kind of like jumped in here to help these employees get their unpaid overtime uh do you know anything about these guys and like what they like are they uh an act are they an actual union or are they kind of using the word union i think they're that's a good question um they use the word union and not uh right so it's yeah it's possible that they are not in fact i mean what is the the definition of a, you? Maybe patch cut this. So the definition of a union is is generally you're interfacing with one company, right? Not necessarily, right? Because there can be a union that's like sort of industry wide, right? So like the uh, like the Actors Guild, right? The right, Guild. right, right, right. Yeah. And I'm not like an expert on like labor law or any of these things. Uh, I I've done a tiny bit of socialist organizing, but I'm not like a you know labor organizer. But yeah, I they I I think the key distinction here that it's like why i'm asking about it is uh they have to kind of like collectively represent a group of workers right like uh if they're just an advocacy organization that like which is what this kind of sounds like it just sounds like they jump in to help individual workers who are in need of help which is cool but like that's not the same thing as representing like the collective will of a large group of workers that's the point of a union the kind of like a large part of the point of the union is that they even if they don't do it is that there is the potential for them to strike and if you're just like a 
advocacy group, then you can't strike. There's nobody to strike, right? There's no, you're not, there's not a bunch of workers who are a member of your union who will strike together. Well, first of all, it's not an anime, um, anime industry specific organization. It's basically, as you said, it's this support group against what are called in Japanese black companies, which are not the same kind of black companies that we should all be supporting in the US. <laughs> True. <laughs> this is, just means that they are bad companies with bad business practices against their workers. Um, so yes, whatever they are, whether they're a union or just a support organization, they have been um, helping out these people in the anime industry and other industries. Um, and not only getting these people settlements, which is a big deal, but I feel also that they are raising awareness, which is which has been great. Yeah, that's one of the things I noticed about this is they they've said in statements, uh, at least in the 4C case, I think also in the trigger case that they're explicitly kind of seeking out these cases in order to put pressure on the industry um, and kind of be this like threat, right? That's like, oh, if you do this to your workers, we'll be there and we will come in, we'll swoop in and help them get their money back and we'll make it look really bad for you. As I understand it, like you said, the 4C case the um, production assistant wanted his money, obviously, but I think his, his ultimate goal was to kind of shine a light on, on this thing. Um, and then the settlement, the, the lawsuit ended up um, ending when 4C just wired him the money. And therefore, um, legally, uh, the, there was, the uh, lawsuit didn't continue. So ultimately, there was no action brought against uh, 4C. But at least... Um, word of this got out there. Yeah, so I mean, th this to me is a pretty good development. Like, I, I would like to see a union, but I think, you know, just like like an actual industry-wide union or, or just unionizing individual shops. But one thing I do know about organizing is just that, like, it, it has to be on some level organic, right? Like, you, you, there can be, you know, union organizers who kind of, like, kind of agitate for a union and talk to people about it. But, like, it's just... it the people in the union have to believe in it, right? So that you can't, I can't just sit here and be like, you guys should start a union, <laughs> right? You know, the, the interesting, one of the developments that's been good in the last few years um, is just the fact that animators themselves are getting more educated about this kind of stuff. I think a lot of, a lot of animators are very, in one sense, kind of very pure people. They're creative people. They don't want to worry about... Um, money and and things like that that's not that's not why they they're doing it right they don't want to get rich on anime but but they're realizing that even if i don't want to get rich i do need to make enough money to live and therefore i need to pay attention more attention to this stuff you know some animators that i've met were telling me they would enter a studio without asking hey what by the way what is the base pay for one Oh, one wow. frame and stuff. You know, they're just thinking, oh, great, I got a job at a, the studio. They made some of my favorite anime. I'm really excited. And then they've been unable to survive on that wage. So just people in the industry have been telling me in the last 10 years, thanks to people like Janika, even if they're not a, a union, um, they've been going around telling animators, hey, you need to get smart on this stuff. And I think that's maybe led to these lawsuits or to these production assistants, you know, realizing that they can go to a to a organization like this in the first place uh, and I, I guess it you know it technically doesn't have to be a union but the reason why i keep bringing up unions is just that the that kind of like collective worker action is uh i think it's just very it's hard to beat that in terms of like putting pressure on companies 
uh, that you can do a lot of stuff about like educating people and getting animators to be better about asking for more money. Uh, but there's very little that is like as strong as like multiple animators or multiple workers in the industry or uh, even just, you know, at a single company being like, we are not going to work or, or we're going to make things hard for you unless you give us X, Y, Z like that. That gets the goods. Usually <laughs> we did mention COVID up at the top. And I think it's probably worth talking about that and how that has affected this stuff in particular. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked on the show before about how it's affected the anime industry generally, which is uh, not great. A lot of stuff, you know, there was a, a large uh, time period where, theatrical screenings weren't happening things were getting pushed back uh there were a lot of events getting canceled which is like a big source of revenue for some companies uh these like you know idol concerts and things like that yep um and especially it threw off the production schedules uh because things were getting slowed down or they couldn't get released yet and that meant like money's not coming in but you know there's this kind of very tight web of of schedules of like you know a company is working on one show and then uh uh kind of before it even comes out they might start work on the next show that kind of thing yep exactly and studios are passing uh work to other studios and um back and forth some studios don't have for example a their dedicated compositing thing so they pass that off to another place and anime as you, as everybody listening to this i'm sure knows already even before COVID is like kind of skin of your teeth. You turn in the episode an hour before it airs. Type. It's the paranoia agent episode where he delivers the, the tape right as the episode airs. Exactly. Exactly. So you just, you just kind of introduce one little bottleneck into that very fragile um, ecosystem and things start to fall apart. Yeah. So uh, there is some reporting. Anime News Network has done a bunch of stuff. I wrote one article way back in March, which is like, hilarious to read now because it's just like everything has changed so much in just a couple months yeah on the on the production side uh it it seems like it's it hasn't affected like animators as much as a lot of people thought part of that is because animators were already like many of them were working remotely they would work from home and then you know someone would come pick up their drawings or if they were working digitally they could like send them just digitally so that stuff like it it's in some cases, I think it's been affected, like for, for studios that were working analog, that's now harder, right? For a lot of the studios that were like drawing pencil on paper. Uh, but for studios and animators working digitally, it's really not that that different. Like, uh, you know, there's some reporting showing that that's like doing fine, pretty much. It's like it hasn't changed that much. Yeah. I spoke to um, Unyoung Choi from um, Science Saru a few months ago for a uh, about their... Uh, thing Japan sinks that came out a while back and um, we were just talking about COVID a little bit and she said they're a relatively new studio and they focus a lot on digital techniques anyway so they decided all to work from home and they barely had any any effect at all so yeah it really just does depend on how your studio is set up to begin with and there has been there have been effects from slowdowns in China uh, early on, that was the big effect was actually just like in betweening. And, and uh, I think, in, I mean, in some cases, I don't know if they're doing a lot of key animation in China, but probably <laughs> at this point. Uh, but there was definitely animation work going on in China that was being slowed down because of, uh, yeah, COVID restrictions in China. But at this point, they're kind of over that hump. So that is like less of a bottleneck, I think, right? It certainly feels like it. I mean, the summer anime season was pretty skimpy, but this upcoming season has 
um, by my count, one bajillion TV shows. So it was a lot of stuff that was supposed to be on in spring or, or summer coming out now, plus the stuff that was scheduled for fall. So it seems like things are, are picking up again. Yeah, there are still some bottlenecks on the Japan side. And it seems like, you know, if they're not if it's not the animators in some of these cases, it is like you mentioned the compositing uh and potentially CG, which is kind of related because both of those require uh, computers, right? So the compositing happens entirely on computers these days. That compositing is like combining together the different layers. So, you know, combining the 3D and the 2D animation and just like lens flares and whatever else. So I, I did talk to a producer when I was reporting early on on it uh, who was talking about how there was some difficulty in moving to work from home for the um for cg uh folks because they um they needed like software access uh i I think you had mentioned matt that like there's also potential problems with not having enough uh powerful enough hardware at home right that they would need to use the computers at work so that poses a little bit more of a problem compared to like an animator who might just be able to draw (laughs) right yeah there was a i don't know if you saw this but there was a kind of a freaky cyberpunkish um, video of I think it was it might have been Polygon Pictures anyway one of the the mainly CG places and all of their workers were VPNing from home to their setup at at work and so all of these machines had work going on on the monitors but nobody's in the actual room that's what I had heard about is they needed to set up VPN in order to get everybody like early on they were like scrambling to be like okay we got to get it so that everybody can access this stuff at home that's right. And for, for anybody who's worked on a VPN on another computer, you know how, how much lag can get introduced there. So, yeah. Slows everything down. And then the, the big one that there's been a lot of, lot of reporting and, and just chatter about is voice acting, which is the one that's the hardest to remove from like the, the human interaction element. So traditionally in anime, you'll have four or five people in a booth at the same time kind of playing off of each other. And uh, if you've watched Shirobako, you can see this. Um, but these days, that is uh, a no-go. So they moved from that to, at first there was some recording at home. And um, recently, people have been going into studios, but kind of taking turns. I've, I've had a little bit of experience with this myself. I work on a couple documentary-style TV shows and um, we never really, we never had people working in the booth at the same time because it's mostly narration. But what we have had in my case, again, we've had some re- remote recording where if the narrator has a good enough setup at home, then they can do that. And we all watch it on, on Zoom or something, which slows things down because the narrator isn't just narrating. He's also acting as the essentially everything, right? The He's got to run the mic and things like that. So so that slows things down. It's kind of harder to hear than it would be in a nice studio with good with good speakers. And then when you, we moved later, we moved in back into the studio, everyone wearing masks, maybe fewer people in the room at the time. But um, in that case, when you're, every time you change from a narrator to a voiceover actor or something like that, the um, studio staff have to go into the booth, uh, wipe down the tables, um, put a new pop filter over the mic, um, kind of spray some mysterious liquid into the air, <laughs> which hopefully is, do- is doing something. But um, in any case, it, it makes things take longer for sure. 
Yeah, and I know I know a lot of uh, anime recording studios have been like you're. I, we're, they don't usually do anime only, right? But a lot of studios that work on anime uh, uh, dubbing are like switching to doing you know re- more remote work and doing exactly what you described, like fewer people in the room at a time, cleaning things. Yeah. So it just it just makes the, first of all you don't get that same that same level of of kind of participatory group acting that you used to be able to get. And secondly, it takes longer. Right. So that's definitely like it's it's a combination of these things, right? That that's holding the the holding some of these shows back. Though it sounds like things are kind of starting to come back now, mm. from what you were saying uh, in terms of there just being more shows. It feels like it. It feels like it for sure. Uh, so something something I'm curious about is, and, and you have maybe a little more direct connection with this, uh, just from being in Japan and like you know <laughs> interviewing people and and reporting on stuff. Is how much of this stuff do you think is going to stick around after COVID? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I th- a lot of people were a lot of younger animators, for example, have never really drawn on paper. You know, they they're kind of tablet natives, and I think that's that was happening anyway. But that's going to be accelerated by this. It was happening kind of slowly, right? Because there were still a lot of animators working on paper. Last I checked, a couple of years ago, with somebody. He said it was like still 70% of the industry. Right, right, right. Um, but again, the, the people that are coming up now in their, in their teens and 20s, I think, are going to be kind of digital native in that way. There are places, again, like Science Saru. Um, one of the reasons that they probably weren't affected that much is because they don't rely on uh, in-between animators from China because they use... Uh, I, I don't want... You know, I sound like I'm bashing China, but uh, I'm not. It's just that, um, again... When as soon as you get into a more kind of international thing, if one if one country faces a bottleneck, then it's going to introduce all these problems. But um, Science Saru, instead of using um, hand drawn in between frames, they generally use uh, flash animation to fill in the the gaps between the the keyframes. I mean, I, I guess I've seen that in some of their shots, but I didn't know that they consistently tweened their shots i thought it was kind of just like sometimes they did it i think that's kind of their their claim to fame i don't know what percentage of shots don't have have hand drawn in betweens but i know it's a huge percentage compared to your average your average thing so that's probably part of why they they had less of an impact than some other studios so yeah we we may see more more um relying on computers rather than human beings yeah, even for the more traditional animators, right? They're they're gonna have to learn it now because uh, it's it's the easiest way to work remotely at this point. Unless they're gonna like scan. I'm sure there are people doing this. I haven't talked to anybody about it, but there must be people who are like drawing on paper, scanning it, and then sending it in, something like that. I think you know traditionally that's been the job of the production assistant. Right, right. You know? <laughs> but yeah, it's it's possible that they might scan. I mean. Key animators are so in demand and so busy that I think a lot of them would resist taking that hour to scan stuff in. But, you know, maybe a lowly production assistant could come with a mask and a, and a portable scanner or something like that. Yeah, but they won't be paid overtime for it. Nope. <laughs> you know, the, the, the kind of sad thing about this whole situation is everyone can technically work from home. And that's fine for veteran animators who already kind of know their style and 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 how to draw but for these young guys who really 
count on their senpais to just be in the same room and look over their shoulder and go, you know, I would draw the line like that, not like that. You know, I think a lot of that kind of human connection is is being lost, and that's kind of sad. Yeah, that's a great point. There was there was some. Uh... Uh, we'll, we'll have these links in the in the show notes, but there there was a, an article on ANN that was talking, it was kind of translating an article, a Japanese article, uh, talking about how a lot of animators like trying to get used to the digital uh, workflow or the problem isn't just getting used to the, you know, drawing with a tablet, which I can tell you as someone who draws is, is a, a pretty significant hurdle if you're not used to it. But also, yeah, getting used to the, the way that meetings work. They're used to having in-person animation meetings to work out the details of a shot, that kind of thing. And like that doesn't exist right now. And they have to figure out how to do that stuff virtually without that direct human connection. Yeah. And I mean, I will say we're, we're coming into fall now, so people might be spending more time indoors and that might increase um, uh, infections. But uh, like right now, I think yesterday, the um, infection count for the day for Tokyo was 77 people. So it's possible that we might end up all back in, in rooms together anyway. So we'll see what happens. That's I'm just like crying from how low that number is. <laughs> I, can, I, I, I can tell you about, I mean, the first few months here, we were, um, we were pretty solidly at home. But over the last couple months, I mean, I've been, I've been careful when I go out with friends to be kind of at outdoor bars and stuff like that. But life has, I wouldn't say it's normal, but compared to what I hear from the States, it's pretty darn normal. You know what I mean? Well, the thing is, we've got people doing that too. It's <laughs> well, just that they're, yes. it's just that the, it's not an appropriate time to do it because the numbers are so high here. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but yeah, I imagine that there are anime studios that are maybe um, spacing out their, their tables now uh, more than they used to be and making sure people wear masks. But I, but um, just from my own experience, more Places are um, again taking precautions, but kind of back to to coming together. Yeah. Uh, something else I think that's worth mentioning here that ties into all this is um, that we I think have one so far uh, one single like studio bankruptcy as a result of COVID, but I'm sure there will be more. Um, I'm sort of waiting for the other shoes to drop. Yeah. Uh, but this uh, studio tier studio. Uh, which is the company that made Frag Time, mm -hmm. which I did not watch, don't really know anything about. They uh, declared, or yeah, they declared bankruptcy, but they also had a weird thing where they just disappeared. And like the show's official website had to put out an announcement being like, we haven't heard anything from them. <laughs> we don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Again, this just shows how, how weird and tangled the, the anime industry is because you would assume... Well, there's a studio and you call them and, and you can go there and they're there, you know, <laughs> but instead it's like the production company is trying to get in touch with the studio and the studio is not there and animators aren't getting paid and nobody's even sure who to invoice in that case. It's kind of a mess. It's a good example of just, you know, these, uh, the kind of funding is so, uh, so fragile. Like you used that word before, right? And, and like they can produce a show and then... You know, if, if enough dominoes fall in exactly the wrong way, it's just like, oh, well, whoops. Okay. Like now there's no more money left. The company doesn't exist anymore. So maybe we should move on to talking kind of as our, our some of our final stuff here, just thinking through like uh, where, where does the industry go 
from here. Uh, and ki- and I, I think there's a l- part of that is is a little bit of kind of like some of the deeper causes of this. One of those that I think is related to what we just talked about is there uh, there was a this recent um, article that again got translated through Anime News Network. Uh, or like quoted, not not a direct translation, um, uh, about sort of claiming that the problem is that these studios don't really know how to manage their money and that they're kind of like, you know, they have these poor accounting practices and they, they end up kind of being like, oh, whoops, there's no more money left. We, we did the math wrong. Yeah. How, how much do you buy that as an explanation? Well, again, there are studios like Toei who are these massive... Um, corporations. Um, there are studios who have been a- around a long time, like Production IG, for example. And I imagine that they have accounting departments and and they've been able to figure it out over time. There are studios that get launched um, by passionate animators who want their make their own studio and maybe they don't they haven't figured out how difficult accounting can be. I mean, we going back to the to the 90s, but um, Gainax was a studio like, just like that, founded by a bunch of um, anime fans in their 20s who, who wanted to do, do their own thing. And they ran into a huge problem when Evangelion came out and ended up being way more of a hit than anybody expected. And um, you'll have to look at that really nice book. I think it's available for free online. Uh, what's it called? The Notenki Memoirs. Yes, yeah. It's got details of this, but basically um, they got into a lot of, of problem with the tax office. And it wasn't, at least this is their account of it, but it, was, it wasn't that they were being nefarious or trying to hide their earnings or whatever. It was literally the fact that they didn't know how to do accounting and they got in big trouble. So yes, I, to a certain extent, I buy it. I mean, it's no excuse, but, but um, it certainly could be a part of the problem for sure. Yeah, uh, and I think this kind of ties in because there's a lot, a lot of the discussion around this, which sometimes frustrates me, is the idea that the problem is just that there's not enough money, right? And we kind of mentioned that when we were talking about the production committees that they really don't give that much money down to the studio, right? So the studio doesn't have a, that much money to work with in terms of like paying the animators. But I don't, I don't totally buy it personally. Uh, I don't really have like a, a ton of, um, <laughs> like a, there's not a lot of reporting on this to, to prove this one way or another, but I uh, just, I don't totally buy the idea that if the, if the studios just had more money, even the studios, forget about the production committees. If the production committees paid the studios more money, I kind of don't buy that. Like the animator salaries would just go up (laughs) from there. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I know what you mean. If the industry rate, for example, for a, for an in-betweener to draw one frame is 300 yen, it's going to take a very kind of kind-hearted, nice, you know, um, the boss to say, well, no, here it's going to be 500 yen. And it, it's not like people like that don't exist, but it's, there is no financial incentive to pay more than the industry rate, right? Right, exactly. Like you, you, you would need uh, a studio head who really wants to like do right by their employees, which I think they exist, right? Uh, I think the, the folks at KyoAni have kind of proven that, but uh, I don't... <laughs> I find it hard to believe that that's just like every studio is going to do that out of the kindness of their hearts. Yeah, exactly. But but on top of that, there is a, a there's like multiple levels of this, right? Because there's 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 the production committee and the studio and the animator and there's the the sort of like 
there's the international streaming and international distribution stuff as well mm-hmm. that gets tied into this when when people kind of talk about it online especially and there is a you know a sort of meme which is like a support the creators right like get the the legal mm-hmm. non-pirate version of the thing because it supports the creators which i mean pirating doesn't support the creators at all right so that's like a moot point but uh that that's kind of like the binary that gets put out there mm-hmm. And the problem is that, as we've sort of been talking about throughout this podcast, that doesn't necessarily support the creators that much because so much of that money gets siphoned off by the uh, by the production committees, or in some cases by the the by like you know the international distributors. Uh, but this is the story that I think is really interesting: is uh, an animator named Terumi Nishi who is very vocal about this stuff. She's she's pretty cool. She's like the the character designer for JoJo's Bizarre Adventure diamond is unbreakable part four and she's always in the news you know with whatever new thing she said about you know oh this is the problem with the industry and what she recently mentioned is that based on what she knows uh netflix is paying quite a lot of money to the production committees but then it's just oops it's all gone (laughs) and like none of that extra money makes it back to the studio so it's like two to three times the amount of like regular tv anime yeah so it's kind of like a this ties in maybe with what i said before about unions right which is like i'm sitting here like gosh it would be great if there's a union uh but it, it does feel like there's not much that we can do right we could yeah watch the show on netflix and that might help the studio or the production committee like get another show made with netflix uh, but then that money is going to go to like Anaplex or something. <laughs> it's not going to like go back to the studio. <laughs> yeah. Again, I mean, again, not advocating piracy by any, by any means, but yeah, as you say, the money is, it's certainly not going straight to the creators there. You know, there are creators, I believe Nishi Sang is one of these people and there are other animators out there who have their own, uh, Patreon or, or things like that, which is something that you can do for sure. But of course, like we were talking about with the difference between these like in-demand freelance animators, you're not going to be able to build up a a livable Patreon uh, like income if you're a brand new animator. The people who can do that are people like Nishi who have this, you know, following and she's like, you know, she worked on JoJo's, right? She's like an in-demand animator and designer. Yeah, the the Patreon stuff, it kind of, it's great, but it, yeah, it does feel like the equivalent of, of, GoFundMe being being this weird patchwork um, of of because America doesn't have health insurance, you know. Yeah, so I mean, I I kind of talked about this on Twitter. It, it just feels like the solution here, as much as fans want to do something about it, like you know, I think we can support Patreons and things like that, um, and and uh, you can maybe talk some a bit about the animator dormitories, which is something uh, something kind of in that vein, but like. I think it kind of has to come from the industry, right? Like whatever this, whatever happens here, like it, ha- it kind of has to be internal. And, and we as fans are, we can support it, but we, I don't think there's much we can do that it's like <laughs> to, to cause it to happen in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have been encouraged by um, just even the, in the last few years, I don't know if it's because of better uh, translation software or more Japanese creators making of you know being active in learning english or or fans being active in learning japanese but it does feel like there's a lot more kind of crosstalk um between japan and and america or or english-speaking countries um 
and more fans are just becoming aware of these issues. One thing we can do is certainly kind of raise our, our voices, you know. But as you say, it yes, it ultimately has to come from the industry itself. I did make a point on Twitter, which I will make here also, because I think this is something like people don't talk about in these discussions, is like, I do think fans could probably have an impact if we put our like money where our mouth is on this stuff, right? The kind of just, okay, support the legal distribution of the show is focusing on the wrong part of the problem. Like that's good. You should do that, right? Because like that's the month, that's how you, that's the only current method that, you know, where you can like give money for the show. Uh, so like, I, you know, piracy, not good. Zero dollars goes back to anybody. Uh, but that, it doesn't actually address like the underlying inequities in the, the way that, that that money is distributed fans could do something like literally i just can't imagine fans doing this but like fans could protest a panel when like a studio who's abusing their workers shows up to a convention right right that might do something like embarrassing a president of a studio or or of a you know or a, from some production company like that's on a production committee like but but that's kind of like that's a step that I, I don't know if fans are ready to take because like ultimately fans are consuming anime and like i don't i don't know how many of them you could get to oppose anime indeed indeed uh so in terms of solutions uh I think, you know, we kind of talked about unions, but I'm I'm curious because you might know a little bit more than me about this, like what the sort of state of unions in the anime industry is like what what unions, if any, do exist. Well, yeah, I'm not sure I know many, it, much more than you do, but I know that Toei has long had a, a union. That's the one that I'm familiar with. <laughs> Um, apparently, they are actually a branch of a thing called the Eiren Roden, which in English is the Federation of Cinema and Theatrical Workers Union of Japan. Um, they have made a lot of um, progress at Toei, just in in terms of getting people, again, from freelance people who are effectively workers there to actual workers there. So good on them. That seems like a... I, I don't know if there's kind of a movement to do that specifically, but that seems like an industry-wide goal that would be like pretty tangible. Yeah. That workers could focus on, right? It's just like because that's that's what's going on here with um, like rideshare drivers, right? With like Uber and Lyft, is there's a lot of a lot of mistreatment going on, but there's like this kind of focus, this movement around just like classifying folks as employees instead of independent contractors, right? Yeah, and the, the in the anime industry, it, it's particularly, I mean, okay, Uber and and rideshare are pretty bad too. Um, anime has a decades-long practice of saying, okay, well, you work here and please be here by 9 a.m. and and please leave at 6 p.m. and here's your desk and uh, please don't work on anime for other studios, but by the way, you're not our employee. Yeah, 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 that's <laughs> that's so true. Yeah, but the, the desks is, is pretty big. Like you end up, you have a desk at the studio, but you're not actually an employee. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, and there is Janica, which we've talked about. We talked about that in the Patreon episode a little bit which is basically an advocacy group that sort of advertised itself as a union when it was first announced. So I don't know if that was them or if that was bad, bad English translation. Yeah, because for years and years, the English Wikipedia entry for them said union. And so I thought they were a union for a long time. And then I started being able to read Japanese and then bumped, you know, hopped over to the Japanese page and went, wait, wait, wait a second. These aren't, a, this isn't a union at all. So I think... To their credit, they were always... Right, they weren't lying about it. 
Yeah, and I know they put out they put out reports and things which are at least, you know, they give some people some fuel for advocacy, right? In terms of just like, all right, here's the current state of the industry and working conditions. They do that. I think they hold um, they hold sessions for animators about how to negotiate and how to um, do things like that. So n- not a full fledged union, but but fighting the good fight for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is, like, yeah, if it's not a union, that doesn't mean it's worthless, right? These things are still valuable because they can help workers, uh, like we were talking about with the Black Kigyo Union, uh, just helping, literally helping those two workers get their unpaid overtime is valuable, right? And helping other workers realize that they can do the same thing. And, you know, just to go back to Janica, I've interviewed them a couple times. They seem like very passionate about what they're doing. Um, to Just to give the full picture, there are ex, ex um, not employees, ex-members of Janica who, who are very critical of it. They have basically cited the fact that it's about 10 years old and wages haven't gone up. Oh, yeah, yeah. They've said, you know, enough of this. It's time for a real union and things like that. Oh, that's cool. I, I don't think I had heard about, about that. It reminds me a little bit of the IGDA. Yeah, what's it? Independent Game Developers Association, I think it mm-hmm. stands for, uh, which is like ostensibly a, an advocacy group for, you know, for game developers. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think they have done some good work on that, but uh, they were, they had a whole big controversy, well, maybe two, three years ago. I think we talked about it on the show uh, where they had a, I think they had a panel about unionization or just about working conditions. And someone asked about unionization or something. And like the head of the IGDA was like, well, you know, unions, I don't know about unions. And they were like, you know, being really like trying to, trying to dissuade people from joining a union. And people were like, aren't you the... You're supposed to be advocating for us, but they, I mean, they think it's different from Janica because I don't think, I don't think there's any indication that Janica has any like ulterior motives, but like they're not doing, they're not doing harm, right? They're just maybe not doing enough good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with, with IGDA, it was kind of like, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's shifted a little bit into a game industry advocacy group, which is different from a game worker advocacy group. <laughs> That's that I think is like a key thing that, that fans who maybe are not like versed in kind of you know, just thinking about labor mm-hmm. organizing and things don't, that's like the key thing to distinguish is like the industry and the workers are not the same thing. Right. There are things that benefit both, but there are times where something might benefit the industry and in that it benefits the workers' bosses. It benefits the, you know, the companies make more money, but the workers don't get anything from it or get very little. Ultimately, the anime you watch is made by the workers. They're the ones who drew everything. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> You know, this has been a huge education for me, just reporting on this stuff for the last three or four years, learning about Japanese labor law and Japanese labor history. And I'm still just catching up on all this stuff, but um, it's just um, stuff that the average fan, not to not to dig on the average fan, um, but it's not something you really think about when you're watching the next episode of One Piece. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's good for everybody to think about it. I'm glad it's happening in anime uh, and in games, right? I mean, the, yeah. there's a huge movement towards that happening in games, uh, and I don't think the two are incompatible. It's just people kind of have to like learn to think in those terms. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to kind of square the square the circle of like I'm a fan of this media and the people who made it, but like the it was made under 
exploitative circumstances and I want to support those people, right? And and that can sometimes be difficult, but I think it's it's like a process that that the game industry is going through right now of figuring that out and I mean I think it's possible for anime fans to figure it out. We're maybe not quite as far evolved there as the game industry is. Right. I think the language barrier hurts it a lot, right? It's a lot easier in games uh, in like, you know, like western games for people to read reporting and there's a lot of lot of websites and things doing really good reporting on labor issues in games. Uh, and it's a little harder with the language issue in anime. That's right. That's right. I mean, speaking of that, let's just give a shout out to Kim Morrissey at, at Anime News Network, who does a ton of this stuff. Um, Frog Kunan on Twitter. So I'll, basically a ton of the stuff we've talked about today, the reason that we know about it is because she's looking at these obscure kind of um, financial <laughs> uh, Japanese websites and stuff and and translating this stuff so shout out to her Kim is cool we should have her on the show I'm she's on my list of many people who are cool and should come on the podcast absolutely yeah I think we've covered a lot of it uh, is there anything I missed in there that you want to touch on before we go to our few questions oh I mean just in terms of like the future and just to end on maybe a more positive note I mean we talked about how people are talking about how bad the production committee systems are. I think there are probably good production committees and bad production committees. But again, one way to get around that problem is to make an anime without a production committee. And increasingly, it seems like people are talking about that as a viable option. I spoke to a, a studio head a few months ago and he wasn't talking so much about money, but he was talking about how the production committee slows down things creatively. And that's the reason he doesn't like it is because it's the kind of too many cooks in the kitchen thing. And they, they tend to be a little more conservative. And they tend to be quite conservative. Yeah. Yeah. They want to make something that'll sell. That's right. Which the studio does too. But this, but the studio maybe is a little more interested in, in something that's like interesting. <laughs> For them right exactly and especially if you've got a studio with a very strong brand like going back to studio trigger yep. nobody's gonna watch a trigger anime expecting something to be um conservative and um flowery and whatever right you're expecting to like mm -hmm. get your balls thrown on the wall <laughs> or whatever the phrase is that's a that sort of has a different implication when you put it that way <laughs> Sure. But anyway, anyway, I think some people, some creatives are getting fed up with production committees for that reason, too. So there's like this new um, Mamoru Oshii thing coming out. I don't know if it's going to be any good or not. But yeah, Vlad Love and uh, Vlad Love. And it was it's being funded by a brand new anime studio um, set up, I believe, by just a a. Uh, I think they're a construction firm or something. And maybe somebody at the studio just decided, or not, somebody at the firm decided, hey, let's make anime too. <laughs> and they're funding it all on their own. And they're funding it all on their own. So that's very cool. I, so that, see, we're talking about what fans can do. And like, even just in terms of which anime you choose to consume, mm -hmm. it would probably be pretty good to come out in droves and support the self-funded anime as opposed to the one that's made by a production committee <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah and on on that note if we're diving into even more kind of indie anime then there's stuff literally made by kind of one one creator in their bedroom 
you can mm -hmm. find that stuff online. I know the animator dorm that we were talking about a bit, they're trying to fund their own short anime um, through crowdfunding. So you really have to dig, but there are kind of these alternative ways of making anime that are cropping up now. Yeah, and I know, I mean, I've been, you and I have both been like interviewing people about this stuff for years. And uh, yeah, production committees always come up as kind of just like a, a thorn in the side of creators over the years. And like, they've always kind of, you know, they, they often won't complain directly in an interview and be like, oh, the production committee sucks. But they will very often, like when you talk about crowdfunding, they're like, yeah, wistfully, like it would be great <laughs> to have a different system that doesn't require production committees, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they've kind of been searching for that for a long time. And I, I, I mean, I hope we get there at some point. Indeed. And, you know, I, I hear the same exact complaints about production committees on the live action side, too, um, from people who make live action films are saying the same thing. You know, my creativity is getting stifled. Um, I just want to do this, but they won't let me, things like that. So so it goes. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's answer some questions we got uh, these are both from the discord we'll answer one well we're gonna answer both of them one of them is from a patron it's billy denton uh, he says i feel like on that subject all the questions i'd ask you are already going to get hit but just in case what wine do you pair with the flesh of the bourgeoisie and how do you prepare it that's a good question um he's talking about uh, eating the rich uh <laughs> yeah i'm down I don't drink wine, so I don't have a good uh, a good wine pairing. Yeah, me neither. I, I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like if we're going to be eating the bourgeoisie, then we need to drink a beer or something, you know? Well, there's two options there, right? You can go two. You can go two directions because you could you could like yeah have a sort of proletariat alcohol, or you could drink the the spoils of the revolution. Ah, yeah. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. But you know, with that, you you have the worry of you find it, you get a taste for that for that bourgeoisie stuff, and then you just you become the next generation. Well, the bourge the bourgeoisie wine was made by the workers, so <laughs> okay. we can make more of it and share it. <laughs> That's true. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, how do you prepare it? I assuming how do you yeah. prepare the flesh? The flesh, I guess. Yeah, this is the yeah. Well. Because I professed my love for yakitori at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> wow, we're bringing it all around. I think we're going to cut them up into small pieces, throw them on sticks, and grill them over charcoal. What do you think? I haven't had yakitori in a while, so yeah, I'm down. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm definitely missing yakitori right now. I'm missing a lot of stuff about Japan. I was supposed to be there in May, and then COVID oh, yeah, hit. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I mean, hopefully before too long, we can get back here. We can do another episode in person. Yeah. Next one here is from is from Paths, our uh, our editor and uh, co-host of the Cockpit podcast. Uh, he says, "I'm sure it's already in, on the list, but I'd like some detailed discussion of what parts of the animation production uh, have been trying to move uh, to work from home and how tenable that is." So we talked about that a little bit. Do uh, you have any other ideas about like other other parts of it that have like moved to work from home or or might stay work from home? Yeah. Um uh, not a ton that we didn't already talk about. Again, anime is this weird thing where it was already quasi work from home to begin with. Yeah, I'm not, sh I'm not sure. Yeah, definitely the animators are going to be like they, they were already working from home. So that like or a lot of them were not not everybody. So that that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious how much of like the animation supervision is going to stay remote, right? Because some of that might end up being more efficient for like the animation director to be able to like review 
frames virtually, right? And not have to like look at all that in the office. Right. I mean, there, there might be a thing that's been happening across industries here and in America, as I understand it, where a big studio or even a medium-sized studio is thinking, well, we pay rent on this building every month. We've got 30 desks in here. And right now they're being occupied by 10 people. Why don't we move to a smaller building? When we need to have meetings, we can have meetings, but otherwise everybody's at home and just save a lot on rent. And then maybe that anim- that money will trickle down to the animators. What do you think? Hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> not how that usually works. Uh, <laughs> right. But yeah, I th- I'm curious to see if there will be stuff like this sometimes happens here with kind of startups and small, small scale companies, especially like internet centric companies, mm-hmm. like maybe studios with no office space or, or just an office space that exists for like storage or something kind of like, kind of like what you were saying for like meetings. Right. So it's just like, yeah, everybody's remote. It's just like a virtual, a virtual studio. Of course there are, there are numerous disadvantages that come with that, that we're all quite familiar with now in the corona age about just kind of being able to separate work from from free time and, and um, not having the materials at home, a fast internet connection, um, a good, it sounds silly, but a really good chair, you know, yep. things like that, so... Somebody, somebody told me once you got to invest in, uh, in anything that's between your feet and the ground or something. Mm-hmm. Meaning shoes and socks and yeah, I guess chairs is sort of part of that, right? Like any anything that you, gravity is pressing you down on every, all the time every day. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes total sense. Yeah, um, but the other thing, in terms of maybe not work from home, but work from as I mentioned, a, I think it's ninety or ninety nine percent of anime studios are are in Tokyo, and it might become feasible. You know, Kyoto Animation is not. Um, PA works is not, and there might be studios in the future that pop up around Japan, just taking advantage of much more space, uh, much lower uh, rent. And also, frankly, there are government programs trying to get people out of Tokyo and back into these smaller towns in Japan. And I imagine if you set up a, an animation studio somewhere in Shikoku or you know somewhere in the countryside, then the government is going to give you a decent amount of money to do that. And you can just make nothing but shows about Shikoku. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and and then you get the fans coming to look at, at the places that you've set the anime in, and you've got this amazing virtuous cycle going on. But, you know, you could use animators from Tokyo. Right, now, especially as if the work-from-home workflow really sticks, yeah. Or vice versa, animators in Shikoku or in Kyushu or whatever could work with studios in Tokyo. I think that answers that. So uh, that's it for us. We're going to wrap up. Before we head out, Matt, where can people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at RhymesWithGuy. I'm in Otaki USA magazine on the website. If you go to Japan Times, uh, type in my name, you can find my anime articles there. And for some reason, if you wanted to go to my personal website, it's matchly.com. I also write for Otaku USA, have not written much for them of late, been been kind of busy with stuff. Uh, the, there is animeburgertime.tumblr.com. And we have a Patreon. Uh, speaking of Patreons, uh, support <laughs> Anti Gamers on patreon.com slash Gamers to get into the priority 
question list and access bonus articles and podcasts, including the previous episode with Matt and Sean, uh, Sean Amara from formerly Colony Drop, now Zimmerit.moe. It's a lot of, a lot of good stuff in that, in that Patreon uh, that is patron exclusive, uh, including the golden ticket benefit in which uh, if you if you subscribe for at least $5 a month, you get a single-use golden ticket and you can force us to review any title that you want. Ooh. <laughs> Very dangerous. Matt, I think you are a patron, right? I am, uh, but I'm on the lowly, the lowly one, yeah. But it's just a good reminder that everybody else should be cool like Matt and, and join the Patreon. I'm just doing this. I'm bringing... I, you're like the second recent patron I've had on as a guest. Uh, just It's like someone who I'm, I'm friends with who is also a patron. <laughs> and then I'm just using you guys to pimp the Patreon. Fair enough. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I will say even if it, it's a... These are the hard times of Corona. Even if you don't have five bucks a month if you have a mere one dollar there is a you can do that right yeah yeah you get a you get a special thanks we will thank you on the podcast and you also get access to uh patreon polls and as a matter of fact i will have some more thank yous to give next month because we've got a bunch of new patrons as part of our push to hit a hundred dollars we keep adding these goals right we had like a 50 dollar goal and now we had a hundred dollar goal and uh, our uh, everybody is really nice. And like, I always expect that I'm going to be like, all right, I'm going to have a couple weeks of like pushing to hit, hit this goal. And it just happens in like two or three days. We, we set a goal for $100, which we hit pretty quickly, uh, thanks to a bunch of new patrons. And there is a, a benefit that happens at that at that $100, which as long as everybody's cards go through at the end of the month, then then this will happen. And it's uh, we're going to start a new column called the mystery box of misery that is being kind of run by ink and he has a a ton of uh of like blind box dvds that he got i forget how he just has them sitting at his apartment and uh we will let the patrons pick every month there's going to be like a different contributor doing the column and the patrons will get to pick including one dollar patrons what dvds from ink's giant list the uh, have to get inflicted on the reviewer and they have to watch them even like even out of context. So like just review <laughs> volume three of Technolize or something. Amazing. That should be fun. So that that's a that's a, that's a benefit that you've all unlocked thanks to your Patreon subscriptions. So thanks everybody. Uh, and you can check out show notes, blog posts, and a link to the official AnnieGamers Discord on AnnieGamers.com. Reminder: the Discord is free for everybody, not just patrons. Come in and hang out with us. Email us questions, responses, and topic suggestions anytime at podcast at anygamers.com. Talk to me on Twitter. I'm at sign vamptvo, V-A-M-P-T-V-O. Anygamers is at sign anygamers, one word. I'm on Mastodon at vamptvo at mastodon.social. And finally, episodes are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And uh, we could always use extra reviews to help more people find the show. And if you write a really funny review, we will read it on the show. That was a promise we made a long time ago that we have nobody's written a super funny one yet so <laughs> it's a challenge all right uh thank you so much for listening thank you matt for coming on and talking to me about this very important topic yeah man thanks for having me we'll see you all again in about two weeks later later